0: Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good. By investing in integrity. In today's episode, we were joined by Vijay Tarathrai, a managing director at Techstars, where he leads the Riyadh Techstars Accelerator and previously launched three corporate partner programs in the Middle East. Vijay currently manages an investment portfolio with a global mix of more than 40 technology companies. He has extensive experience as an accomplished entrepreneur, having founded multiple businesses and a corporate venture capital firm. In addition to his success as an entrepreneur, he served in the boards of multiple nonprofits and for-profit organizations. If that's not enough, he was the global CEO and chairman of the Entrepreneurs Organization, or EO, for a period of time as well. And we're very fortunate to have Aj on our advisory board here at Scholars of Finance. We hope you find Vijay's insights on investing, entrepreneurship, and leadership as helpful as we did. It's a great conversation, all thanks to him. And we hope you enjoy it. And now, without further delay, we bring you Vijay Tarathrai. Vijay, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Investing and in Integrity podcast. How are you and where are you calling in from today? Hey, Ross. Thank you very
1: much. I'm actually calling in from Saudi Arabia at the moment. I'm attending a conference for the tech startup world and investing. So pleasure to be on this podcast.
0: Thanks, Vijay. Thanks. I appreciate you taking this podcast while your wife's out to dinner. I hope we can get you out of here soon so you can go join her. And to all of our listeners, it's very early morning for me for a podcast recording. So forgive me if I stumble through our interview today. <laughs> this is our first international podcast recording we've done. I'm I'm really excited for it, Vijay. Vijay, we have so much to cover and so little time, it feels like. Let's dive right in. You You've had such an interesting journey from founding multiple companies to now investing in numerous startups. Can you give us a brief overview of your story from how you became interested in entrepreneurship, your current role with TechStars managing investments in over forty technology companies. Wow!
1: Well, where do we get started, and how much time do we have for that? <laughs> so, uh, I want to say that I come from a, a family line of business, right? And uh, I started business very early at the age of thirteen, and the family business was a retail store. And I found myself in the shop floor, serving customers, you know, uh, running the cashier, ringing the bell to stocking up the merchandise on the shelves. And so I had a very early exposure to business. And I guess when you talk about entrepreneurship, and the best mentor I've had in that journey was my father, who taught me everything about business at a very young age. I started my first company, I want to say at age 27, uh, many years later. And it was about an idea that I had, which is safety helmets for cyclists, because I was an avid cyclist, and that began my journey from manufacturing and distributions around the world. And I think if you kind of summarize my entire career over the last 40 years, it's been a mix of manufacturing, clothing, manufacturing safety helmets, fashion retail, and I had a string of startups. Most of them failed, by the way, uh, which which is a fun thing to say. Uh, But many of them actually scale and I've exited in due course. And so in doing all that over the last three decades or so, I have built this incredible knowledge base of starting businesses, scaling them up. And I wanted to impart that knowledge to, to entrepreneurs around the world. So many years back, I made it a personal mission to help entrepreneurs succeed in some shape or form. So I've been angel investing. I've been being mentors. And then one fine day, I discovered Textas, which is a great organization based in Boulder, Colorado. And they spoke to me about me joining them as a managing director. And I decided five years ago to do so and base myself out of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. And what Textas allows me to do is to invest in companies but at the same time, put them put the founders through an accelerator program and nurture them and build these companies up. And I can I have to tell you, Ross, this is like the most wonderful thing that could happen in my juncture at this point in my life, because I have the benefit of sitting on a platform to invest in exciting innovative companies, at the same time seeing the transformation of these entrepreneurs to grow into successful companies. And so this is where I'm today, being an entrepreneur, from being an entrepreneur now to being a, a I guess, an investment manager.
0: But Jay, I really appreciate you sharing the a very, very high-level overview. I'm impressed by how succinctly you can convey the illustrious career that you've had so far to date. You've worked in so many leadership roles in so many diverse industries, fashion, nonprofits, membership organizations, technology. What do you attribute to your success as a leader in all these different sectors? What are the, the paradigms, the values, the principles that, that have led to your success across so many industries?
1: That's a great question. And I want to say that, you know, what comes to mind, leadership is not a singular description or statement, it is situational and it's contextualized. So leadership is applied differently in different circumstances. And so when you think about a startup, or you think about an enterprise-level company, the type or attributes to a leader is very different. How a leader plays out is is fundamentally very different to every stage of the life cycle of the business. And that's been my personal experiences doing startups, scale-ups, and enterprises business. It's also very different from a for-profit and for a non-profit like SOF, because it requires different leadership. And in many circumstances, I've been involved in an organization called the Entrepreneur's Organization, which is a peer-to-peer membership-based organization, the Young Presidents Organization. And again, having a chairman of the board and being a CEO of the Entrepreneur's Organization, my leadership skills are very different. In that situation, I'm not necessarily the boss where I'm building consensus and, and issuing instructions to my direct reports. In this situation, where it's a peer-to-peer environment, it requires a different leadership skill where you have to influence without giving a instructions, if you will. And I think that's very nuanced, but it is very widely different. But back to your question about the attributes, I think across the last 40 years, what I think a great leader is, and why I strive to you know, be principled about it is three things that comes to mind. One is integrity. And two is the ability to be vulnerable in the eyes of your team. And I think vulnerability will speak to authenticity as, as a leader. And that builds trust. And that builds the connective tissue uh, so that one can work with the team because they see that you're human and you can be humane. In situations. So, vulnerability is a key part of it. And I think, last but not least, is being tenacious. And I think tenacious is only because, particularly in the startup world and building companies, the amount of energy that's required is just extraordinary. And sometimes it goes beyond your job description, it goes beyond your pay grade just to get things done. I think, Ross, you're smiling because I think you can relate that, right? But if a leader like- Just <laughs> a little bit. Now <laughs> you got. So if a leader can have it and being tenacious, it rubs off to the entire team. We also need to pull along. We also need to work hard. So I think if I summarize it, for me, the key attributes would be integrity. Uh, I think that needs no uh, de- you know, description, vulnerability. And and t- being tenacious. Those are three things that I think a great leader should have.
0: I appreciate you sharing Vijay. I think back to when you and I met at Stanford, um, when we were doing that class through Stanford Continuing Studies, mm-hmm. I was immediately struck by the bit of vulnerability that you brought forth in your communication. Mm-hmm. And of course, your suave elegance and eloquence as well. You know, you stand out as a very articulate, very thoughtful leader with presence, but I remember you being a little bit vulnerable talking through some of the challenges you faced. You and I, of course, as well in our early conversations really connected on the importance of integrity, how in the financial system, whether the public markets, even in, you know, private investing like you're doing now in, in venture capital, how that's so important, not only for investors to have integrity as we're seeing with the meltdown of FTX, you know, over the last couple of months, uh, the requisite need for investors to to see and identify and run diligence on integrity in the founders they invest in. Um, it's really interesting. As an entrepreneur, you know, you've worked with many different companies and management teams. As an investor, many, many more. How have you aligned your values and your mission? with those of the company and people you're working with?
1: That's an, a great question, uh, Ross. Not an easy answer, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this. Okay. To me, leading and managing your day-to-day affairs, the best case forward or the best foot forward you can do is to mirror yourself in every situation that's possible. Mirror yourself in every individual that you interact with. And if they, there's resonance between myself and, say, you, then I know that that is the fundamental premise to be able to do business together, because there's chemistry, there's mutual respect, there's understanding about our values and our principles to do business or to engage in a partnership of sorts. And so in that situation, when I talk to you about my what's important to me is integrity, Integrity is building mutual trust. Vulnerability is about building mutual trust. And so I take the step forward. I take the first leap to be vulnerable because I anticipate you to mirror my actions to say, I'm also vulnerable. And therefore, by doing so, we're both open and there's honesty in in our conversation. There's transparency about our issues. The quicker we can get to that, that builds trust. And, and that's how I mirror my principles in conversations with individuals. And if I find that, and this happens a lot, by the way, if I find that that's not resonating, I feel the person's not being open or vulnerable or reciprocating the way that I'm trying to lead the conversation, then I don't get a good feeling about it. It's likely that I will not invest in the company. It's likely that I'm not getting to partnership with the individual. It's likely I'll not hire that person uh, as member of the team, and I think that is for me to decipher. In my ways, in my mind, has a person got integrity? Has a person got the same mutual principle values that I care for? And so, you know, when you talk about FTX, the scandal, you talk about Credit Suisse recently, who's got a big scandal there, and then the collapse of Lehman Brothers. They're great people, great talent uh, running these companies. But along the way, what caves in is basically integrity. And along the way, no one really cared beyond doing the, the motions of due diligence, the motions of just getting the work done, meeting targets, or driven by bonuses or incentives. Right. But no one really cares about, you know, do we connect on the level that I'm talking about, which is building integrity uh, within organizations?
0: Hmm. Interesting. It's It's so fascinating how integrity will break down gradually, almost imperceptibly. One of our other advisors, Tony Paquette, who's now CFO at Point72, who I met when I was at SoFi there, and he was also there. He had mailed me a book the Infinite game by Simon Sinek, Simon Sinek's most recent book. and he unpacks in in, in lay terms and very accessible understanding understandable terms, the notion of ethical fading that our ethics sort of fade. It's one small white lie that was harmless, turns into another small white lie. Um, and you know, ten years later, as that snowball rolls down the hill, You're now the executives at Enron going to prison for fraud. And you sort of ask yourself, what happened to me? And how did I even get here? Um, And so I think that keeping a focus on, on integrity, A, having an accountability culture is so important. Be constant self reflection and constant self retrospection to make sure that our integrity doesn't slip and doesn't fade is really, really important. And something we try to do at, at Scholars of Finance a lot, we try to teach our students to do as well. And my hope is to inspire all of our students, you know, now over 1,500 students into that lifelong habit of reflection of seeking accountability and you know really creating creating structures around themselves to maintain and protect and preserve their integrity over the long term your career has been full of inspiration in many ways Prior to joining techstar as you mentioned you've founded several companies yourself in manufacturing and in, in events associations, corporate venture capital walk us through each of the companies you've started and what inspired you to start each of them so I think one of my first companies that
1: I started was uh, I referenced the safety helmet companies. I've been an avid cyclist for since I was a kid, and uh, I've had some really nasty accidents. Maybe I was quite a sadist in my lifetime, in, in my childhood, perhaps. I don't know. But <laughs> I felt there was a need to protect children with safety helmets. Now, this sounds like a, a no-brainer today, but when, I, when in the early 90s, believe it or not, It wasn't mass market as yet, but today, many countries are applying mandatory rules for that. So I felt, and I saw an opportunity to solve that. And so that was an innovative uh, product that we manufactured uh, back in the early 90s to distribute around the world. Uh, Another company I founded was um, an association management company, which is... Taking all the shared services in every nonprofit associations and basically delivering that solution at scale. And uh, again, you know, in both cases, it was not something that I, I thought this is the biggest opportunity that's gonna exist in the marketplace. It was more of a case that I stumble upon these issues that this is a problem that of frustration I had in dealing with looking for a helmet. Or working with associations or nonprofits. And when I get agitated that no one is solving these frustrating points, I say, well, I'm going to do it. And so I'm a classic entrepreneur, I'll just go out and build a company to find a solution. And I've done this multiple times. Sometimes I don't succeed, sometimes I succeed. But that for me, the thrill of signing for something from scratch to prove that I can do this to solve. A solution in the marketplace is really what drives me whether it's an it it builds enterprise value of a hundred million a billion dollars that is not what i'm motivated for but the ability to get customers and say we love your product we love what you do that is the most gratifying moment for me
0: i've got to say i i love it too i really relate and it's interesting to hear you say that because your love for satisfying customers, for really for helping others, I think that comes through in your work as a mentor, your work as an advisor. You know, you you advise dozens of companies. You know you've been a mentor, an advisor to me for, gosh, I want to say almost half a decade at this point for many, many years. And I know that your desire to help to make an impact is always shown through in our interactions. It's funny for anyone listening who is not an entrepreneur who hasn't built a company. they're probably scratching their heads like, if you're having trouble finding like a safety helmet, you know, just go online, right? And they are like, they probably can't relate to it. You know, it's like, Oh, my knee jerk reaction is I couldn't find a safety helmet. So I'm going to spend the next four years, you know, or five years building an enterprise to, to solve this problem for millions of other people. It's such a unique personality trait of yours and of any entrepreneur, but it's, it's cool to see it and hear it from a serial entrepreneur like you. That said, obviously, as I've learned all too intimately over the last few years, and as you've heard, you know, in our mentorship and advising calls, entrepreneurship is full of obstacles, full of challenges. You know, when you're, you know, a small cog in a large machine, right? Like a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley or a SoFi, for you know where I used to work, it's easy to um, miss all the obstacles and challenges because, you know, the level of challenge you face is just like interpersonal. It's a little bit of politics. It's, you know, your little piece of your little project. When you're the CEO co-founder, you're dealing with obstacles and challenges that are existential to the business on a day-to-day basis. Can you describe what some of your major struggles were founding your own companies, what you would have or could have done differently, what you learned, you know, walk us through some of those challenges and what you learned from them.
1: Someone once said that starting a company or being an entrepreneur is like eating broken glass and staying to the abyss. And what that really says is you got to be crazy to, to, to do that. And I think I've been crazy enough multiple times to do that. And so just as a warning label, if anyone's contemplating being an entrepreneur, it's not a job. It is essentially It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that's going to take a different turn if you're thinking of jumping from a corporate world, which has got a degree of stability, predictability, as well as, you know, you can impart your skills, but the nine to five experience is a nine to five experience, and that's it. But if you're ready to change the world, you're ready to go out and impact the community, people, the planet. Then entrepreneurship gives you a lot more, I guess, latitude to be able to reach those goals and and mission. And so I think one of the learnings that I picked up as an entrepreneur in in my multiple forms in studying several businesses has been that, you know, I'm driven by a high purpose and mission that I want to change the status quo. I'm not going to be contented in the world as is and so the willingness to change the status quo from the get go is going to create a lot of friction a lot of friction with whoever you're dealing with it could be suppliers to customers to your family why do you want to do this you know and you just don't have the the control of time. There's a misconception, by the way. You know, to, be a, to be the CEO entrepreneur, as you are, Ross, is you you can relate to this. There's a perception that, okay, I, I'm the boss, so I'm in control. Quite opposite is is a fact. <laughs> You're not in control. What are you actually doing is managing a lot of external factors and internal factors almost every day at random hits to try to make sense of the situation. But the moment you get some what I call product market fit, you get some repeatability, some scalability in that startup business, then it it becomes a little bit more stable for you to scale, delegate the responses through a great team, and then to be able to then focus on strategy as opposed to focus on firefighting. And for the most part of my life, I've been firefighting, I think I'm probably the best firefighter you can find because that's what the startup life is, is really putting out fires from the get-go. And I think if one is prepared for that entrepreneurial journey and one can see through all the downsides of being an entrepreneur, because the silver lining is that when you actually get across uh, uh, these challenges and you actually make a difference to customers people communities and the planet is highly rewarding highly gratifying and that's the thing that i'm seeking for is that ultimate feeling of grace that you actually done something wonderful and impacted a lot of people around you and so for me you know i can pick small wins in, in my entrepreneurial journey but the biggest win is is just that it's the gratifying moment that i was able to start something from scratch impacted people along the way And feel really good about
0: that. Early in the beginning of what you were sharing when you were saying, you know, entrepreneurship's not a job. I thought you were gonna say, entrepreneurship's not a job. It's insane. (laughs) It's crazy. (laughs) It's how it feels sometimes. Gosh, I remember and you and I talked about this. Remember, if you recall back when I was gonna step into Scholars of Finance full time, and I told you I called, I won't say which of my parents I called, but I called a couple of my parents. And basically got yelled at and hung up on because they were like, you have this like rocket ship career. This is career suicide, financial suicide. What are you thinking? <laughs> this is crazy.
1: What I didn't share with you at that moment, I'll probably share in the podcast is that I had this evil grin hidden when you told me that I said, he's got to be, he's got to be nuts. Does he really want to do this? And I was trying to keep a straight face to not demotivate you, but sure. I figured you figured this one out for yourself. But I had a good feeling, Ross, about you then, that because of your perseverance, and you have this tenacity with you to say, I'm so focused, and I want to get this idea out that I really connected with you, that I think, Ross, is someone I can be undecidedly, without a question, to really serve as an advisor, as a mentor. And, and that's the honest truth, uh, Ross. I'm saying it publicly here in the podcast. It's you that has the drive, the vision, and the tenacity to move forward. And this is why you've attracted me and a bunch of other amazing individuals on the advisory board of SOF.
0: Thanks, Vijay. I feel um, humbled and flattered. And all of SOF and what it's been has definitely been a a team effort. It's taken dozens and hundreds and now several thousand of us to to create and be the community that is Scholars of Finance. This all reminds me, this brings me back to the days uh, when we met at Stanford. Um, After we had met and got to know each other a bit, I had asked you for advice on how to build Scholars of Finance because you ran a large membership organization, EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. Can you talk about your experience running EO? Tell our audience a little bit about the organization, its size and scale. What differentiates it from other similar organizations?
1: Yeah, the Entrepreneurs' Organization started as the Young Entrepreneurs' Organization in early 1990, and it grew organically mostly in in Canada, uh, in Washington, D.C., through uh, entrepreneurial groups. Entrepreneurs coming out of college, and they're looking for founders or like-minded individuals to connect with to share their challenges in in starting and growing a business. And so the principle around entrepreneurs' organization then was a peer-to-peer, a peer-to-peer learning group that can access information, knowledge, and shared experiences to help them grow as individuals, but also professionally in growing the business. And so that idea then transformed into a chapter-based organization because we had cities represented in different parts of North America. And so the organization evolved from being a one entity to a chapter-based organization. Fast track, uh, over 30 years, the entrepreneurs organization is now in 200 cities around the world with 20,000 members with a median revenue of about $10 Ten million dollars of, and the combined revenue together, I want to say, is about six hundred billion uh, globally. And the whole idea there is to allow successful entrepreneurs to continue the path for learning. We we, we use the phrase first for learning, access to information, access to great resources, so they can thrive in a competitive environment, and make decisions quicker, and so on and so forth. And so, my role, both as a member leader, uh, where I was the chairman of the board back in 2003, was really in the face of globalizing the organization and bringing the chapters under one brand called the Entrepreneurs' Organization and building systems and processes to allow the organization to scale very rapidly. So I was part of that journey and I uh, I was very privileged to be part of that large group. And some of the learnings I think that we've learned in building organizations like the entrepreneurs organization is not to centralize decision making, it's to allow decentralized decision making to take place so they can flourish uh, and tap into the creativity of minds around the world. One principle that even today I believe is t- talent's available everywhere, but not access. So, how do you connect infrastructure to connect those individuals or talent to develop? And that builds an organization. And so, the overriding idea, I think, is that when you give people access, you give people the tools, they will build a great community because they give back in return the positive experiences. I believe that's the same thing or the similar idea that we can learn from and also nourish that at SOF uh, to grow uh, the organization. Today, it's very much US-centric, but I am very clear in my mind, Ross, that this can scale up globally very rapidly once we build a certain volume of traction and you have product market fit, if you like, to be able to scale this around the, around the world.
0: Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate your confidence. Um, I hope there's not an evil grin behind that statement this time. No. <laughs> <laughs> just, a, just a real, genuine one. Vijay, thank you first of all for talking about EO a little bit. It's an organization that, you know, unless you're an entrepreneur, you might not have heard of. And even if you have heard of it or are an entrepreneur, you just you don't have an appreciation for its its sheer magnitude and scale. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that you were a chairman and leader of that organization is a testament to your leadership, right? That you were leading an organization that large, touching that many lives, that much revenue, and, and gosh, the tens or hundreds of millions of customers on the on the end of that. That said, now in your, I want to shift into your role at TechStars, and I, I know you only have about ten minutes, and I have like a bunch of questions I want to ask, so I'll try to move quickly here. Um, shifting into your role at TechStars, um, now you're managing an invest portfolio of several dozen companies, really hands on with the founders whereas an eo you know you were providing these sort of global resources for them to use and enabling them to help each other um, you're a lot more hands on with a more select few today what are the most important lessons you've learned about successfully investing in founders and driving outsized returns as an early investor
1: i just want to interject by saying that i think if there's two things that i can i made the transition from say the entrepreneurs organization in texas in terms of what i think is my ability to deliver value comes to two things. One is inspiring people, and the other one is influencing people. And I think those two go hand in hand in basically cultivating a very fertile ground for uh, opportunities to collaborate, to invest, to form partnerships. And leaders need to have that skill set to be able to navigate. In both groups, I would say that you're dealing with A-type personalities, if you know what I mean, that these are highly successful individuals, they're all alpha males in most cases, and they have a great degree of success from where they come from and the billing companies. But to be able to lead them, you have to bring to the table a certain degree of gravitas and influence and ability to inspire people. And this is what I think I do best in these two groups. To your question about you know uh, during outsized returns, the beautiful thing I think about Texas and the way it's structured because it's a pre-seed investment company that invests at scale is basically we have the ability to hyper-diversify our portfolio. It goes against traditional norms in investing where you have to be very focused and selective. We do quite the opposite, where we actually beyond a certain, of course, very rigorous process of selection. Of founders uh, building companies at early stage, sometimes without evidence of revenue or product market fit. But because we believe in the founders, we believe that the addressable market is big. With the experience, they can execute that. We're willing to back those founders and invest in them. And we've done it multiple times over. And we believe that we need to step back, support them so that they can actually build those companies over a period of time. We don't have a timeline to, to. insist they have to exit so that we can make money. We're there for the long term. As long as they want to hold on to the equity and the shareholdings, we will stick with them. So we are very much, like use used the phrase, patient capital. And that's really what we are in terms of our DNA. To get those outside returns, we know that when you select the best people from the very onset, you give them access to a network where they get the best mentors, the best corporates, access to business opportunities, new markets, access to mentor, uh, sorry, investors, they are likely to succeed because you're giving them all the tools and resources necessary. And along the way, they might realize from the feedback they're getting from mentors and, and the marketplace, the signals. And if they're great teams, they would automatically almost pivot and often pivot multiple times to adjust the reality of the situation. And we've seen this. When you take that approach and allow the space for them to grow and support them along the way in their life journey of building companies, what we've seen is that we invariably have very healthy companies. One data point I'm willing to share with you is that if you think about the number of startups fail uh, in the first three years, the number probably you'll hear is about 90% will probably collapse in the first uh, three years. But in our portfolio, the companies that we've invested with, only less than 15% will fail in the first five years. That's a remarkable small number of companies. So in other words, 85% is thriving uh, as we speak. And why so is because it speaks to the quality of founders that we have, the selection. That we've made, but also the support we're giving them along the way. We're going through a very difficult time in the venture capital industry right now with uh, a lot of VCs drying up, capital valuations coming plunging, uh, and, and it's making it really difficult for founders. But what we found in precinct seed at least is sustained because we have a large enough networks to support them. And last but not least, invariably, when you're investing, and the size that we have which is about 3300 companies in our portfolio you know if you just take 1% right that's like 33 companies they are going to represent the outliers in in value of above, above you know 100 million and that's good enough for us to uh, basically justify i mean initial seed pre-seed investments is good enough for us to make our return on capital, and we think that because we're so diversified, we need a small number of companies to basically produce the returns. This
0: is why we can continue to be sustainable and successful. But Jay, I appreciate you walking through some of the complexity and, gosh, the incredibly impressive numbers, right, that, you know, the standard number you hear is that 90% of companies, you know, startups will fail in the first three years. But in your Techstars portfolio, that metric is almost perfectly inverted, right, with 85% are thriving after five years. Um, You know, great ad for anybody who's starting a company. Uh, you might want to consider Techstars as your accelerator. But Jay, I want to move into a rapid fire round. I want to hit you with a handful of rapid questions. Hit us with a quick answer on each of these. We're going to move really fast. Does that sound good to you? Perfect. Okay. Sure. Can you walk us through a couple key things you look for when you're considering a potential investment through your accelerator? What are you looking for from that founder or that company? The founder's passion,
1: almost borderline obsession. On the problem, the sense of insight they have on the issues they're trying to solve. That for me is a golden, is a gold mine. If 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 there's a discovery on that point, I'm on to that founder, like a hate-seeking missile.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Considering the current macroeconomic climate globally, how are you and the Techstars team approaching investing and in your current port differently? How will 2023 be and feel different than 2022?
1: You'd be surprised. We did close to about 500 plus investments this year, and next year we'll probably exceed 600 investments, and we're we'll going continue to grow at the pace to reach about thousand investments a year in the next three years. And the reason we're bullish is because we think that in a disruption in the marketplace, supply chain issues we see, there is issues with uh, trade embargoes and sanctions we see arising from the war. A whole range of disruptions happening around the world, including high cost of living driven by inflation. It's going to produce a lot of innovations. And and this is the moment to invest in ideas. This is the moment to back founders because of that disruption happening in the marketplace. We've just recently heard a lot of layoffs from the tech giants in the last few months. Guess what? A lot of them will be launching new businesses. They will be great people to invest in because they have got the experience, they know how the tech ecosystem works, they've got the knowledge, and they will have
0: insights to exactly where the opportunities are. And that's what we're, we're excited for. Excellent. 500 in 2022 and 600 in 2023. Uh, you've heard it here first. Excited to see see the portfolio next year. Okay, a couple more. One or two pieces of advice that you would give students or young professionals interested in founding a company or being entrepreneurial, working in an established company.
1: So if you're passionate about an idea, that's a pre-qualify for me. Don't start a company because you want to make money. That's a dumb idea. Start a company because you're passionate about solving a problem as I did when I was a young entrepreneur. That's the number one golden rule. And if you want to do it and you're obsessed about it, do it fast, don't wait, start today. And if you fail, even better, because I prefer you fail fast and fail multiple times before you build a successful company. Stop
0: procrastinating and get it done. Amazing, a clear call to arms. What advice would you offer established or seasoned professionals, leaders, executives on how they can keep their firms entrepreneurial and innovative?
1: Well, I think you need to be influenced or maybe another word is saying contaminated by the entrepreneurial uh, community. So surround yourself with some, some brilliant uh, entrepreneurs who build companies, perhaps exited, uh, get them participating in maybe an advisory board or engage them in collaborative processes. Uh, there's a lot to be learning from that mindset. And I think that mindset speaks to where the key difference is that the agility to execute on problems A good example is why SpaceX is so brilliantly successful, because they're able to make a rocket in the tens of millions versus a billion that NASA did a couple of decades ago in putting a rocket in outer space. For the same principle that they have the agility to think around quick startups, simplify the process on the lowest frugal budget possible. And I think this is where corporate and enterprise can learn is to adapt that agility mindset using scarce resources without the comforts of a corporate environment
0: and learn to grow. Amazing. Vijay, thank you so much. We're at time for today. Um, have so many more questions to ask. We'll have to have you back on at some point in the future. Um, just want to thank you for everything, for your mentorship, being an advisor to us at Scholars of Finance, helping our team, our students. We're very grateful for you. I'm sure our listeners got a lot out of our conversation today. And um, hope you have a wonderful dinner out there in Saudi Arabia tonight and look forward to the next time we get to see each other in person. Ross, thank you very much.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. I've learned so much from this podcast. A lot of fun. I hope I, I didn't say anything to offend any of your audience, but I speak with in plain simple English, but the idea is to inspire people to, to do the right thing. Once again, thank you very much and all the best,
0: Ross. Thanks Vijay. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.